and ride with me in my foul life. So would you consider the first two days of this till season a success so far in comparison to past years? Oh, very successful. Uh, maybe it was a notch lower today. Um, I think the full moon, like we talked about too, they were a little delayed flight. Uh, and I think some of the areas don't get hunted as hard as people think on Sundays. So there's some rest spots that the birds are hiding in. I know one particular ranch on the way that, and it's a, it's a large private ranch and they hunted it very hard yesterday and didn't hunt today. So you would think that everybody would hunt on the weekend, but a lot of people don't hunt on Sundays. So I think a lot of it was a combination of the, of the late moon. And then there would have been the late flight and it was so hot. A lot of people didn't stay out in the field very long and they left. And then, then I think it was just, just hunting pressure overall. So you think if we had stayed a little bit longer, as far as the groups go, there was a chance to see some late moving birds. Oh, I definitely think so. Yes. Yes. And we might've quit too early, but we were hot and things to do. And so it just worked out that way. It's amazing. Like when your adrenaline's going, like, you know, it's hot, but you just, you're, you're sitting there. And then when you take those waders off and you can feel your clothes and you know what you've been, yeah, yeah. You've, you've been you can see it in the dogs, dogs today, too, right? Yeah. The dogs were ripping it in the morning and they were coming back. They were walking, walking. Yeah. Walking. And not even like that hard. Like they're not swimming. Like I'm not saying they're not working hard. Don't get me wrong, but I've seen a lot. That sure. Heat a just, lot that harder. heat just takes it all right, out. It's heat and the humidity. Humidity yeah. will get a dog really fast. Big time. Big time. And Even I guess that's something are... I'm not used to because we just don't hunt in a lot of humidity. Yeah, yeah. And I think I was telling you, I, I rotate my dogs every other day. Makes so sense. even your dog at the end was getting tired. Very tired. Part two is Steve Biggers, Terry Denman. We talked, we ended part one with saying we're going to talk about the moon real quick. I want to get into some things about vision too, but the moon, Steve just mentioned the full moon, the late moon might have these ducks that are already here getting up a little bit later. But what do you, in your hunting career, Mr. Terry, moon plays a role in all aspects of hunting, right? I mean, you can talk about the migration, you can talk about nocturnal, you can talk about, you know, different parts of the deer cycle, according to the moon, the rut cycle, according to the moon. Talk to me about how important it is to understand the moon if you're going to be a serious hunter. Well, if you're talking about waterfowl, uh, ducks specifically, I don't know as much about geese as, as, as ducks. You know, ducks don't see well at night. And uh, they do see at night, but they don't see well at night. And uh, and they, they tend to want to migrate at night. I can't tell you why that is. Maybe Steve would know that. He can join in if he does. But, you know, it makes perfect sense that they migrate on the, on the full moon because they, if they want to migrate at night, they can see. Uh, we went out right. this morning before daylight you didn't really need a light for anything unless you want to look at something real specific. I meant the air was clear, uh, uh, the moon was bright, and you could just walk around out there. So it'd be easy for a duck to fly all last night. And uh, and I think that's the that's the deal. Now, you know, we know the moon exerts uh, all these forces on the earth. And, you know, you study duck migration, it comes pretty, you know, complicated about, you know, uh, uh, this and that and another, and they fly by, you know, different things. So I don't know what effect that might have on them. I don't know, you know, how anybody would, but I know it has effect on deer, as you mentioned before. So they feeling something in there. And then, and of course, then um, the barometric pressures, you know, uh, is uh, ducks are sensitive to the barometric pressure. So, I don't know how to put all those factors together. I, just, I really don't, but I just do know the ducks uh, tend to migrate on a full moon. A lot of outfitters, and I, I assume you're the same way, maybe besides blue wing till opener, do you shy away from 
telling clients to book dates knowing that the full moon's going to be there or no, what is your ideology so, on no, that? I'll tell you exactly. before I, the moon during or after what what I, you know again 50 uh, percent of my business during the big duck season is local people local being within an hour and a half of me we they i always tell them to come on because because you never know if there's a lot of hunting pressure even with the full moon they're going to hunt if there's a great wind you're still gonna have some good duck hunting. We might hunt later, but I, I will tell my out-of-staters if I were gonna come, I wouldn't come on a full moon. And then if I did come on a full moon, it, I'd hunt on the weekend. So I, the, probably what I'm trying to get at is I would, if I was traveling somewhere to hunt, I would not go on a full moon in the middle of the week because there'd be no hunting pressure, and then of course the full moon, so they're feeding at night. So again, reduce flight in the morning, right? How is it known how fast or slow a duck's metabolism works? Do they go through food fast? Is I've heard that like when they're in the corn, they got to transfer the water back and forth because of the gases in the corn, and they got it. They digest it. You know, they got to get some water on mm-hmm. it to help digest it and get it down their craw. But is there is? I'm just wondering when you start to mention the full moon and they're feeding at night. Is that why maybe we should that you say? Well, if we stuck around a little bit longer today, because that that metabolism starts to wear through that that meal they had in the full moon, and it's time to go eat again. Or are they going? Are they are they getting up and moving around for something else? You think? I think on the on our case on the blue wing teal, you know that rice is still uh, it's got a pretty good coating on it. Uh, I don't know the official word on the on a seed like that, but the shell of the seed, I would think they would need the fresh water to help wash that down, to help die, to, to make a slurry, right, to get into their gizzard. Um, but, you know, again, I felt birds today, and we didn't have as many birds as I thought with rice in their crawl. Did you notice any? I didn't feel a bit. I didn't feel. I didn't. I didn't notice any. Yeah. Yesterday either, I didn't feel as yeah. many either. So, so those birds probably just got here. Right. So the ones that we would kill with rice had been here and fed overnight. So we don't, since the moon just started on Friday or the, the birds we killed today, had they been here for a week or are they the ones that just showed up? I think they just showed up. Just being that empty. Right. And one of my guys today, uh, most everybody said they felt like they had adult males, but I had one guy that he shot into a pretty good family of, 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 of babies, of young birds. And then we had a, one guy that had six blue, I mean, a six green wing teal on his strap. That's kind of different. Meaning so, that they're moving. Yeah, they're moving. But they're just the moon is like Terry alluded to. It's uh, we know they move, but it, it's still, it still is a mystery to us as well. It's a pretty cool mystery. Yes. Yes. Uh, I've always been like a 10 to two kind of guy anyway, you know, for the last 10 years, at least of liking to hunt ducks besides like the flooded timber. Mm-hmm. When you're in the flooded timber of Arkansas or any flooded timber and they're coming off the rice, they're going in there in the morning to get, you know, they're, whether it's pressure, whether it's birds of prey, whether it's to get an acorn or whatever, but I, most flooded timber places are done hunting by 10 a.m they're they they make you get out of the woods so those rafts can build up Mm -hmm. but a lot of that hunting is early Mm -hmm. they're coming in there pretty early a lot of that has mystique to it and it's a it was a gentleman's sport early on right you didn't hunt all day it was Mm. sport so you hunted till 10 that's more of that's what that was yeah and then go have cigars yeah yeah i mean that's truly the you know for us um, again we don't have refuges in this area and so we try to quit 10 30 maybe we'll hunt till 11 but it's not because we don't want to hunt till 12. You know, I, I like to hunt too. But gosh, we can't, we can't beat them up every day like that and, and sustain a, a, a quality hunt all season long. Right. If that makes sense. 
I think it does. I mean, if um, you, you're saying 10 to 2, and a lot of the areas you're hunting are probably cold, and some of it's froze up early, and you got to wait for the sun. Wait for you the thaw. Yeah, in Texas, you know, we don't have to wait. <laughs> There's it, Warming up just means the sun comes up. Yeah. mallards have just historically done that you know there'll be mallards there at first light but they really start coming in about nine o'clock in right. the morning yeah. my whole life you know the uh, the teal mostly green wing teal during the big season the big green wings be flying around crazy at at the um, uh, first hour or two and then the mallards gonna come at nine so the big question is and we've asked ourselves we do it out loud in the blind you don't shoot the tail this morning you don't wait for the mallards so right. you know that's just part of the mallards habit too well in our culture is you want to wait on the one pintail we can kill or do you want to shoot six teal because we're going to get our pintail once the sun comes up yeah what is your guys's thoughts on do we take the vision of ducks for granted i know that when they start to accumulate and get in bigger groups and you start to add more and more eyeballs obviously odds of them seeing you go up with all of that those eyeballs on you but do we let's just take let's stick with where we're at with early season blue wing teal can they see good if it's a, a group of youngins i assume that their vision isn't a hundred percent of where an adult bird would be just like in the human theory but can they see good are we taking it for granted and hiding good enough from these teal this time of year? Do you need to take your hide serious this time of year to hide from blue wing teal, or or do you can you get away with a lot more? Well, I think one day it is, and that's the beauty of this sport. One day it it's they they act like a, a mallard that's been hunted for three months, and then there's days you could park the ranger there, and you're out in the decoys picking them up, and there's thirty of them landing on you. I I, I don't know if I can answer that because. That's a, this has been a mystery to me. It's amazing to me. Well, let's stick with the vision part of it. Do you feel that ducks can see good? Oh, I, I think they can. It may not be the image, but the, a glare or something that's just not natural, an, an unnatural light. What do you think of the vision? Well, Chad, uh, I mentioned this to you earlier, but, you know, for about a year, maybe not quite a year, I just decided I'd start studying uh, duck vision uh, what what they see and what they don't see and a lot of that stuff is biological and I, I can't follow some of the biology of it but i can get the gist of it as we would need need to know as a hunter and i can tell you this uh anybody who wants to duck hunt ought to start studying that stuff because it's it's been rather incredible some of the things i've seen but uh, those people that study that type stuff, they refer to ducks' uh, vision as like supervision, and they have supervision. They have they have things that we don't have, and of course they are prey animals, so their eyes are on the side of their head, and they don't see the same uh, th- thing with both eyes. But they have near 360 degree vision, you know, maybe 300 degree vision. They they, they don't have pure. 360 degree vision and uh, uh, they can actually change the curvature of their eyeball of their retina which we can't do that allows them to see better and focus better and so they can focus on uh, things at different distances you know you and i until something gets very far out you know you got to change your focus to one level now once it gets so far out it's all the same thing after that but they can change theirs to do all that and they have a lot of blood vessels that go to their eyes you know that helps them to do that and helps them to see and they they can see in the dark but not well you know they when you in the uh, in the early uh, light the first time you know that's really the easiest time to kill them they don't pay much attention to because they they can kind of see good enough to be going flying around but they can't pick up everything they can and uh they see motion 
uh, uh, great. It, it, they see it. I don't know who determined this, but I, I know it's if the number's not true, the concept is true. They see a motion about three and a half times better than they see a still object. And then on top of that, they see in the UV range. And, you know, the UV range is just a different wave length the humans can't see. And it actually, I read that where some young people with the very best eye, eyesight can see a little bit of the UV range. Hmm. But I, I promise you, I can't see it, you know. And it, it's a whole new ball game when you get to that UV range because um, your skin kind of glows like a light bulb. Or probably the one that sun hits on some little shiny surface and reflects that uh, right lay back, you know, they can see all that stuff, to, you know, so good. And they can identify shapes. They see the colors of the rainbow, most, you know, the best. What they see best is blue and green. But, but you know, about what us, us humans do, uh, except when you like you get into black, they see the black, but they can't really determine what shape's on. So then it gets kind of so far out in biological terms, it's kind of hard for me to track. But if you just take that, that alone, just what I said then, and I'm sure I left out some parts of it that I should have said. Uh, if you just take that alone, you know, you'll think one thing, you know, we need to do a better job at hiding ourselves <laughs> than, than we do. And uh, and most of us do not do a good job of it, you know. And I know on our farm, you know, we'll brush the blinds and they'll get bad and we may go rebrush them, we may not, you know, but... But if you really want to do it right, you would you would you would conceal yourself much better than we do today. And uh, uh, you know, like if you see birds coming, we'll all get down, but we got the gun barrel stuck out the front of the blind. That gun barrel, they can see that gun barrel moving. You know, they probably learn what a gun barrel is. Sure. Uh, anything that you know could cause them damage. You know, nature's gonna give them some capability of detecting that. If it didn't, they'd, you know, they wouldn't even be around with us anymore. You know, so. Uh, if you want to be a real good duck hunter, you'd do well to study uh, birds' eyesight. And it's pretty easy to get to. You know, with the Internet today, that's all I do. I Google birds' eyesight, how do birds see, birds' eyes, you know, birds' vision. <laughs> Google, throw them different words in the search engine there and see what comes up. An amazing amount of information comes up. Yeah, I think that with what he says, Steve, how do you feel about the concealment part of it? You do this for a living and your your responsibility is to hide the clients because sure. they're coming here relying on you. How how important is it to you and, and how much are you focused on it with your team? Uh, I think it's very important. I think he's right, though. He will start off with good intentions and we get to hunting and fatigue sets in and we're tired. and We don't take the time to go out and rebrush those blinds until it's sometimes it's too late and the birds do. They, they definitely spot us. And uh, I think uh, I think uh, you have to stay on top of that. And we try to. You know, we we on a blue wing teal hunt here now. And of course, you can usually get by with a lot more on a blue wing teal hunt than you can say if you was hunting. Well, say take pintails, gadwall, some of them kind. It's you know really harder to decoy. Uh, uh, so you get by a little less. But you know, take this morning. You know, beautiful morning. But uh, those birds were a little spookier this morning than the typical blue wing teal is. And they were watching us. And of course, we had a lot of people in the blind. Sure. We had two dogs. We had four cameras, and you know things right. that. Uh, uh, when you try to film these hunts, you can't do what you really need to do. You can't do it. You can get out and hide all you want to, but the cameraman can't hide that camera. It's got to be sticking up there. And so, you know, that was a factor in what we were doing. But those, as far as blue wing teal go, they were pretty spooky this morning. That's yeah, they what I were. Them, yeah. And it just wasn't us. I visited with all the guides, and the spooky was the word that everyone used. Speaking of spooky, the the 
consensus I got from talking to the other guides and hunters yesterday and at dinner last night was that they kind of had the same hunt yesterday that we did. Yeah. Pairs, singles, yeah. some threes and fours, but not a lot of big groups. A lot of big groups today. Did they go group. find solitude in groups after they got shook up yesterday, in your guys' opinion? Could have been. What they were pretty that? spread out in singles and stuff, and then, yeah, overnight they ganged up. Sure could have. A lot of big groups today. Yeah, yeah. could have. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that comes from new birds getting in the area and joining birds that were here? Or do you think the birds here said we got to fly together and protect each other or something? I'm just trying to think like a duck because yesterday I didn't see any groups over four or five birds. I think it's both. I think it's I think it's a combination of that. Yeah. Combination yeah. of yeah, all, I all the above. And we, we don't have any way to know how many birds in this area moved out. How many new birds took their place? We do know that generally speaking, when a bird first gets there, uh, if he's a mallard, he's pretty easy to decoy, but some other birds are the other way around. Right. And uh, I think I think they 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 looking for their safe place and they don't know where it's at. After they've been here two or three days, they've kind of figured out where the safe place is. Right. I think that makes them a little a little shy. I think they're just looking a little harder than sure. they are. Sure. And uh, but you know how ducks are. It, you know, Steve said it uh, perfectly. Uh, you know, you stand up sometimes they just come land in your lap. Oh. You know, so and, and that's pintails, mallards, all of them can be mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you know, I, it's like today when the dog was coming back. You know, sometimes I, I've seen them follow that motion of the dog right on back to the, just falling right into the blind. Unbelievable. Oh yeah. And you think they're you most time you're worried about the dog yeah. being out there, but really it's not the the dog. I have I, over my years of hunting. To me, the dog does. It, I don't kill enough mallards to know, but I know all the other ducks that I kill. The dog never hurts a thing, unless it's running around the blind uncontrolled. It seems like when you get up to take a leak or switch the decoys, yeah, yeah. get down here. They are. Why'd yeah. you get up? Well, we had yeah, a camera guy doing that. that today, yeah. right? We had a pretty good group work when he yeah. was out of the blind. Is it something that attracts? I was them? about to say that if if you walk out into the decoys in the water, you know, and and you in an area where a lot of ducks are in the air, they they typically come to that motion mm-hmm. and and think about this you know we've all killed them standing out in the decoy by bending over so we don't look like a human and they'll get close enough for you to actually to kill them so you know what that tells me is they see that motion from a long way off but they don't necessarily identify what it was if they did as soon as they identified it as yeah, a human with around. a shotgun in his hand it'd go the other way but they'll fly up inside of 100 yards of you before they figure out what you are yeah, I think that's that's got to be the only explanation because it happens so often mm-hmm. of motion. And, you know, like yesterday and we're picking up, you got all that motion and commotion really going on. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. groups are literally trying to work us yeah. like yeah. a yeah. lot different than when we were staying down and hitting. And, and the problem with our teal season is, and I'm sure it is everywhere else too, we, typically it's the same weather for 16 days. Hot still, no wind till about 1030 and then it quits in the afternoon it's so it's hot and still every morning here during teal season pretty much kind of think of it like this uh chad you know yesterday after we pulled the two uh side by sides up in front of the blind we all standing up we're taking pictures we hang and pick it up decoy put them that's when the best groups work the decoy sure yeah and sure. i don't think that had i think that that was totally a different time of the morning different weather different ducks in a different mode of some kind well, like that then i don't know any other explanation for it yeah it makes total sense i was thinking too of what you know i know that you don't like to brag i know you're a very humble person and we talked yesterday on the podcast about how you don't take credit for a lot of the success of mojo but 
Why did you go into the Outdoor Hall of Fame? If you had to tell me, and it's a, maybe a one sentence answer of why you were nominated and elected to go into it, because it's a great honor. Um, there's not a whole bunch of people in it. Uh, there's not a lot of waterfowl people in it. Why did you go into the out, the Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame? Well, I can only tell you what they told the, the, the people that nominated me. I, I can only tell you what they told me. They said, you know, you put you in there, but uh, try to put people in there that uh, change hunting, raise the bar, you know, something like that. So they give they give Mojo, you know, Mojo ought to be in the Hall of Fame, not necessarily me, but uh, uh, they they just give you credit for uh, improving the game. Did Mike go in? Mike went in. Mike yeah, went Mike in went the year in. after I did. Yeah, the year after. Good for Mike. Rest in peace. So changing the game and raising the bar and making it better um, is what we kind of discussed in getting more people involved, making more opportunity for success. When you're down here with Biggers, what do you think is the reason for the consistent success here? As a businessman, an entrepreneurial spirit of America, the way your mind thinks as an engineer, pieces of the puzzle, all the moving parts, what, how, do you, how do you attribute success here at Rocky Creek that that Biggers is is getting on a daily basis? Well, you know, I, I think like this, you know, what should an outfitter be? You know, what should he do to be? He needs to be in a good area. He needs to be highly organized. He needs to have ambition and try real hard. He don't own any game. You know, you can't guarantee somebody anything. The game's a game, you know. People say, you know, you know, where are them ducks? And they, ducks are wherever they want to be. And there ain't a thing you can do about it either, you know. And so, and that's what um, that's what Steve does here. You know, it's a, obviously a fantastic area. He's fortunate to have been exposed and, you know, and brought up here. And as you can see, he's a great organizer. Uh, and, and he honestly, he studied ducks. He knows ducks. He knows how to, you know, make blinds. He knows how to decoy ducks and, you know, obviously knows how to train dogs, you know, but you can be a successful outfitter without having trained dogs, but you can't be a successful outfitter without those other qualities that I mentioned. You got to be in a good area. You got to be organized. You know, you got to know what you're doing. You know, you got to be able to execute your plan. And that's what Steve Biggers does here. Do you think about it every day of the year? I know that you said that you're out working with the farmers and the landowners. Oh, yeah, every but day. But does a duck pretty much manipulate every move you make in life? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't hunt anything else. I don't hunt anything else. Maybe a few doves, but I hunt ducks. Has it always been that way? It's always been that you way. You never got the deer I grew bug? up, our, our family had a farm. It was a deer hunting farm. And um, I'd sit in the stand about an hour, and I'd be chasing a wood duck down a creek. I, it was too boring for me. And I'm all for the sport, and it's great. I love to eat them, and, uh, but uh, no, I have no I have no ambition to shoot anything but a duck. I love it. And I want to tell you one thing. I appreciate everything Terry said about me, but the other thing, too, is you have to the, – the location is important, and you have to have – in today's time, you have to have a landowner that's just as ambitious as you are because without him, I couldn't do it either. So you have to have a team. And our landowner, the Shearing family, they're involved with DU. They're 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 they love to duck hunt themselves. The fourth generation farm, you know, we're in the rice stewardship program with, and we're in the DU projects, and we work ducks year round here. So the that that's the key too. I've had a lot of landowners. I've leased a lot of land in this county, and there's none of them that as as aggressive as I wanted to be, and they're even more aggressive than I am. That they want it that bad too. 
and and they 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 worry they worry we were you know we we're in a drought this summer they were worried that i wasn't going to get enough water we were trying to figure out how we could get you know i, I rented a big frack pump an oil field frack pump did you see it out back yet yeah Okay, you know what that was for? We yeah. were capturing water that normally would just go to the ditch and out to the river and to the bay. We caught that stuff in late uh, late July, early August, and we were putting water in areas that hadn't had rain in four months. And instantly our, our food came back, our sprinkle top and barnyard grass and all that stuff that we hunt over, right? And had we not done that, we'd be just pumping it on dry dirt. So that's that's a, it takes a team to do that big time yeah oh, you see it here every night too with the just the guys on the grills and the, the ownership they take and the the operation everybody around here is like he was telling me last night about how they were worried too about the water and then mm-hmm. he like he said you'd walk out here in the grass right here where the stage no, is it wasn't was the grass. grass yeah it was he dirt. says and then all of a sudden overnight mm-hmm. it boom when you think about how much you love ducks do you wish you got to to vary it up a little bit more. I know you go to Canada, but do you do anything else? Do you go to Argentina? Do you go over to Mississippi or Arkansas or Louisiana? I, I used to, Chad. I used to a lot, actually. You just like being home now? I, I used to a lot. When uh, when I worked for Exxon, we had vendors take us all over the place. Uh, Louisiana's a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, and, and I just think we have one of the best areas. Day in and day out, our area is just as good as anywhere. I've been – I don't want to say like Stuttgart, but, I mean, that make a big deal, but I'm, I'm good. I, I went there two or three times and – um, I, I just like hunting right here at home. I love it here. I can see why. Yeah. Now, yeah. what about you, Denman? You have done it all in big game hunting, in calling, everything from a bobcat to a mountain lion to a coyote to a wolf to a grizzly to a black bear, crocodiles in Africa. You've killed the big five. You've killed stag in Argentina. You've killed big mule deer. I mean, I could keep going. Why ducks? Why? What is it about these little tiny teal that get you going or your your hair standing up or no pun intended goosebumps to when you have all that other stuff to stack it up against? And I know that the easy answer is, well, every hunt has its place, but I see how excited you get for ducks. You you've almost made your living in ducks. But why 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 ducks when you have an opportunity to go do all that other stuff? I, I don't know, Chad. I can tell you this. I get asked often, I say, what, what's your favorite thing to hunt? You know, and, and you, I, I might bear my answer a little bit. You, the answer I guess, it don't make any difference to me. If I was going to the backyard, shoot rabbits, that'd be fine. If I was going to get to go sheep hunting, and I've killed, you know, the Grand Slam of North American sheep. And, uh, uh, and, and that's a very exotic sport. It's, you know, it's really a premium type of sports and everything. But I didn't get any more excited at shooting them four sheep uh, than I did when you see those mallards break down or whatever it is break down and go in those decoys. Now, I can't tell you what does that. You know, you'd need to ask God or somebody about that because it's something that they instilled I, inside I of you. I think for Terry, I think because he grew up in Louisiana and it's in your heritage, you've been you've been hunting ducks and somebody mm-hmm. tugged you around as a mm-hmm. kid. And, and it, you know, it's an accomplishment, too. Um, uh, I try to get people that, uh, young people around me, whether they're my kids, my grandkids, or whatever it is, you know, to to uh, partake in the setting up of a hunt. You know, if you go on a hunt and somebody just leads you out there and get in this blind, they, they put the decoys out, you know, or they put you in a deer blind and say, well, there's some big deer coming here or something like that. 
You know, that's not near as uh, satisfying as if you went and found a place, put a deer stand there, you went and scouted ducks, put them there, say, okay, I can set up right here, put my decoys out there. That's a much greater accomplishment than someone leading you out by the nose and just put, putting you on something, you know. But, uh, you know, I figure it's uh, it's just a bigger challenge to uh, make these darn ducks try to land in the decoys as it is to sneak up on that sheep. It's, it is, you know. Now, I like to do a lot of other things. You know, I call those predators, you know, and I get a thrill out of, out of calling a cow right up in my lap and shooting him in the face with a shotgun. You know, that's just real thrilling to me, but it's it's about like doing the ducks. And um, and so, you know, I've killed enough big game. If I don't ever kill another head of big game, I'm happy with what I've done today, and I'm glad I did that. But I might quit big game hunting one time because it's too physically strenuous for you, but I'm going to duck hunt as long as I can get myself out to that blind. He says that he likes to stay around home. He's been there, done that with different client hunts and stuff in the past, but why why not? don't you stick around home? You have great duck hunting in Louisiana. You just said yesterday on the show that at one time it was the number one harvest, two and a mm-hmm. half to one. You're still in the top five. Why? I know you got a film and I know you got the TV show, but I know that you have other people that would host that for you in a heartbeat. Why do you feel the need to travel so much to chase ducks and geese at this point in your career? Well, it's a, that's a multi-point, multi-point question. You know, I like to experience it in, do, in other areas, you know, like, I've uh, I've hunted uh, Steve. We say it was ten years in a row, you know. So I look forward to coming down here because it's different. And I'm kind of a A D D D D D D D type person. That's what they call me back to office. He says he's not A D D. He's A D D D D D D D D. You know. So I can go to my farm, kill ducks five days in a row, and then I started getting the itch. Let's go kill them ducks somewhere else. Let's go hunt some other game or something like that. But you always gonna go back to home. Home still satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that you'll travel like this for ducks for the rest of your waterfowl career? I think so. I think so. Enjoy it. Yeah. And and like I say, you know, we have a number of people that help us make the TV show, but I still like to go and you know, like to go and do that. It's uh it adds a new element to hunting. It's more difficult than hunting. It's not really hunting. Uh, it's trying to make game do what you want them to do. And, and you learn a good bit about, uh, you know, about how to decoy ducks and things like that when you're trying to make them do something other than just get close enough for you to shoot. I know when I started guiding duck hunters uh, a good many years ago, and we had a commercial place at one time. We didn't book individual hunters like Steve does. We had corporate members only. We had seven corporate members, and they could bring a couple of guns a day every day. Uh, now, I got it, mule deer hunters and antelope hunters and stuff like that. I noticed, especially in the big game and the mule deer and the antelope, I, I, I figured out I learned a whole lot more about hunting them when I was guiding than I did when I was hunting them. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you're hunting them, you're just anxious to get up there and get a shot. And this way, you know, you're having to stop and think about things that you don't necessarily think about. You should, but you don't think about uh, when you're just trying to kill one of them. Do you... Think, has there always been a commercial draw to the state of Texas for waterfowl hunting? I've never seen hunters like I've seen at this camp at pretty much any lodge. You know, I know it's teal, but I've never seen this amount of people at a guide service or outfitter, which is awesome. But has it, there always been a commercial draw to Texas to come from out of state to hunt waterfowl? Yes. There yes, has. it goes back to when our we used to host the largest amount of snow geese around. And um, I think I told you that Kirk Gowdy, Film American sportsman down here back in the early 70s. So hunters have been traveling this part of the country for a long time. 
So down by down, there was a a certain part of Texas that was a big time snow goose destination. Oh yeah, you're sitting in it. This is it. This is it. This is where it used to be. It's not now, but this is where it used to be. And this area used to be close to two million snow geese every year, right here, all winter. Pressure change it? Uh, No, urbanization Urbanization? changed it. Mm -hmm. Yes, urbanization changed it. Wow. Yeah, we mentioned this yesterday, but Katy, Texas over here, you. A lot of people where I live would go to Katy. I guess they knew outfitter there, whatever reason they went, you know. And every time I come through there, well, one of them guys that used to go there often, they say, you know, we skill snow geese right here, and it's mm-hmm. just miles and miles of concrete and high-rise buildings. Find a Ducks Unlimited magazine from 20 years ago and open it up and see where the outfitters are all from. A couple of Arkansas and 20 from Texas. Look at that. Find that. Really? It's amazing. Yep. How far is Katy from here? Oh, an hour. To the but that was just the that was just part of the the prairie down here was divided in about four zones that was just one zone there was great prairie there, there was a lot there was four big prairies out here around Houston. Katie is a suburb of Houston. Now it it's massive subdivisions, Bass Pro Shops, Rooms to Go, where it used to be rice fields. Really, where the Rooms to Go is on I ten and Katie used to hold one of the biggest concentrations. It was a big big roost right there. So just in the twenty years, it's it's gone. And it'll Damn. never come back. Never come back. Never. What um is on the horizon for Mojo? Is there anything you want to tell anybody that is coming out, that's getting ready to come out, that you have plans for at all? Well, we have a number of new uh, products, if you're talking about products. Yeah. And, um, and I'll tell you about one of them because we've already exposed it. And um, uh, one of the most frequently asked questions at Mojo is, when are you going to bring that old Mojo Mallard back? That was our first product. In fact, we lived for a couple of years just on that one product of Mojo Mallard. It's basically the, uh, uh, the, the decoy that, that, that changed duck hunting. And uh, they had decoys coming out of California before we made that product. But uh, my partner, I, I mentioned this yesterday, my partner, Murray Crow, was responsible for that. And he basically just built a better mousetrap and we attached a better name to it, you know. And um, uh, he, he did it from skill. Uh, he, he did the decoy from skill. Uh, I did the name from... Uh, uh, from uh, a guess, you know, an accident or something like that. But you attach a product, a good product like that, to a, you know, to a good name, and it was it was rugged, it was durable, it was dependable, and uh, it was built rather crudely because that's what the technology was at the time. But it had a big motor. You wasn't going to ever bog the motor down. It had aluminum wings, and the aluminum wings make a better flash because the reflection of light of course, is uh, proportional to the density of the material that's trying to reflect off of. Uh, a mirror would be real dense material, so it reflects uh, those light rays back. Aluminum wouldn't be as good as a mirror, but it's up there in that category. So uh, we have made a modern Mojo Mallard. We, we, we had our carver, Master Carver, uh, 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 from up in Missouri, carve, carve a high-detail body. You've seen it. It's got... Uh, you know, neck and head stretched over the side, just like a duck has, and it mounts on an angle, you know, which is uh, a little strange when you first see it. It's got the, a big, huge motor in it. It's got a lithium battery. And, uh, you know, a lot being said about lithium batteries now because they're getting them to go in your boat, your tractor, your, you know, just everything's getting lithium batteries in them. They're very expensive. Uh, but lithium battery has a uh, a number of advantages over any battery that we've had up to up to date, and it, it's lighter, 
it charges quicker, but the main advantage to it is that it maintains the, the rated voltage almost to the end of it. We all know that because you get these drills and saws and weed eaters and everything now, they all got lithium batteries in them and they'll run and when they don't ever slow down, they just run until they die. So say if it's an 18 volt device, which some of these saws and stuff are, you know, it's gonna maintain near 18 volts and boom, it's just gonna quit. Whereas you take, uh, we've been uh, using seal lead acid batteries in these decoys, you know, for years and they're great batteries, but the minute you start running it, it starts losing voltage. And as it loses voltage, the speed of your motor go turn slows down, so the speed of your wings turn down, and that's undesirable. You know, you want them wings to turn as fast as you can get them to turn. So it's uh, you know, it's, it's got a lithium ion battery in it. They like I say, they charge faster. You know? We put one cool thing in there that I've been thinking about for years. We put a emergency wire. I showed it to you. You know, it just hangs there doing nothing. Uh, it, it's red where everything else is black, and uh, it, the, the lithium-ion battery is a, is a single plug-in as opposed to a positive and a negative terminals like that. Single single plug-in, it still has positive and negative terminals. they just in that plug-in. Uh, but if you have any kind of trouble with electronics, and look, guys, let's get it. You take those electronics like you use today in that. You take them out in the environment we in, rain, snow. The air is always high moisture if you're hunting duck, if you're hunting on the water, not necessarily if you're hunting on the, on the uh, dry ground. But you'll sooner or later go have an electrical problem with one of those. With this one, you just unplug your battery and plug that red wire, and it runs. So that's going to get you through your hunt, it's not gonna mess up your hunt because you had some electrical problem, you know, and get you to back to town to where you can figure out what your problem is and usually not that hard to fix, you know. So, you know, that's one product that we will have on the market this fall. We don't have it quite yet, but uh, we have it, we don't have it on the market quite yet. So um, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. You know, the other one is, uh, is uh, the flock of flicker, you know? So you can ask Mr. Biggers here about the flock of flicker cause he's about a bigger fan of it than I am. But uh, you, know, you know the flock of flicker concept and I won't bore everybody with that uh, again because everybody pretty much understand what that uh, what the concept is. But we, we had some difficulties with the first one, you know, it just, uh, they would get moisture on the inside and they'd get a little corrosion and, and they didn't want to work. It wasn't as hard to correct as you would think it was. Most of the people that had a problem with it, if they would have just stopped and give it some thought, they could have corrected it and went on hunting, but uh, but it didn't work out that way. So we took it off the market because I don't like to sell bad products. So I just pulled it off the market, hurt our sales greatly. We were selling, you know, a, a high dollar amount of those every year. We spent about two years redesigning it and we've tested it and we've tested it and we've tested it and we got some advanced model and I sent them down here to yeah, Mr. Bigger at the end of the season year. last year. I said, look, treat them rough. I sent them all over. I said, treat them as rough as you want to treat them, you know, because I'm not going to put it back on the market till I get it right, you know, and uh, we've, um, we've got that back on the market. It's in dealers now. You can go buy that product right now. So uh, uh, I'm pretty excited about that because that turned out to be a good product and we like to get it. We like to get a product to the uh, to the customer that actually helps them, you know, in this case, uh, duck hunting. And it, would you agree with that, Mr. Bigger? No, we'll I totally to agree. He, that's one of the greatest products that. It's a good one. Do you team it up with the spinning wing decoy? I do. I do. I like anywhere between 8 to 12 in my spread. Even with a for couple big spinners. Ducks. Oh, yeah. I don't think you could put too many unless you got more focal flickers than you had static decoys out there. And then I think you'd probably have too many. Uh, you don't need that many. If you're putting out three dozen 
uh, a static decoys, you know, eight or eight to twelve of those flock of flickers scattered against them, uh, amongst them. I'm sorry, uh, but you know what they do is they make that static decoy look like a live duck. One thing we learned in all our research over the number of years is that if you want to add motion or the spinning wing concept, and that's that's different as we all know, you know, to a to a a decoy, it don't have to be in the decoy itself. If it's sitting there in close proximity, the birds can't tell the difference. So if you got your decoys out and they see what appears to them to be ducks, and then they see them little flickers amongst them, that tells that that tells them that that's live ducks. And it also gives, in my opinion, we, you know, when they're centering in on that spinning wing the whole time, like we talked about yesterday a little bit, they can get used to it. Mm -hmm. But I think those flock of flickers take some of their attention and draw it off of the spinning wing, mm -hmm. even though that spinning wing's still there and it looks like the ducks are working in. Added comfort. There's, there's added still, comfort. Yeah, there's a comfort mm -hmm. level that's mm -hmm. added by them. Mm -hmm. You know, Steve, yesterday, Mr. Belding shot one of those flock of flickers. I think it was you. And uh, we looked around for a shot one, and we couldn't ever find one. So no. we have the video that shows the shot all going around it. And so, well, maybe maybe the book pellet just didn't hit one of them. But we didn't go back to that place today, but one of your other guys did. And he yeah, I got a picture about mid-morning of the <laughs> top of that uh, flock of flicker. He saw it, it, in, the, saw it in the pretty good pattern. Thing, the yeah, only thing pattern. I can figure is some of them BBs hit that little thumb, uh, little finger swing because it twisted the top yeah. off. It separated the two pieces. I've got it sitting right behind me here. Oh, on do the, you? Yeah. Yeah, we tried. He said, he said, well, I don't know. He said, if you start it with your finger, you know, it'll run. I said, well, the batteries are dead. And he kind of looked at me like that. I said, look, the switch was on when it came yeah. off. So even if it went underwater and it couldn't turn the blade, you know, the switch is on. It's feeding power to the motor. The motor's trying to turn. So it's got an amp draw. So it stayed like that until the thing went down. So he wasn't got three batteries. We put him in there and boom, it runs just as good as it yeah, used to. Yeah, sure did. Where's the base? Did he it's find the, the Ranger. Base? It's in the Ranger. Where's the BBs at? Did I get where I was aiming? Right in the wing. Right in the wing. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Flock of flickers. Yeah, they're so heavy duty too now. They were they were they were they were good, but they're, now they're heavy duty. They're guide approved yeah. heavy duty because yeah. we. Yeah. I'd like to tell you that we take them apart and we put them in a nice case. I'm lying. I I'd, I'd pull them all up and throw them in a five gallon bucket because yeah. we hunt every day. Yeah. I don't have time to. The case would have mud in it, and I couldn't get it to zip and. It's just not time time efficient for me. I, I said this on video the other day, and Chuck hadn't seen it yet, so he, he's not yet mad, but he probably will be in the end. But Chuck insisted we put them little clips on the side that you can wrap your cord around, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. and I said, Chuck, nobody does that, but he does. He's a neat freak. He yes. wraps the cord yes. around everything. I put them in a the bag and stuff the cord in there with them. Yeah. You know, when you're duck hunting and you get through and you're tired and you're wet and you're cold and you got to go all this stuff. Or you're you know? hot and sweaty. like Yeah, we're or now hot and sweaty. <laughs> you know, you, we can't make products where we depend upon the customer going to go give them the ultimate care. It, it's not going to happen. We know it's right. not going to happen. Right. And we got to make a product that'll, that'll uh, suffer through what they're actually going to experience in the sure. field. Sure. And between teal season and regular season, you know, these things are getting used 85, 90 times a year. Yeah. We By every them. guide? Every guide. They all got them. All got them. And every one of them believe in the spinning wing too. Every one of them. It's awesome. Two to five per spread probably. Every day. Every day. You know, there's a funny quirk in there that, you know, some days you can put out one or two and you won't do very well with it. And you can put out 10 
and you'll wipe them out. And Mike Morgan and them really put me on that. And um, and I, I don't know what causes that. Uh, I, I do know the, the, some factors are involved in it. If, if you in an area that birds fly over, <clears throat> but they don't typically land there, then and you have a bluebird type day, clear type day. <clears throat> that's that's the factors that will cause them to uh, land, you to cause you to kill ducks on that day when you wouldn't have killed them with the ten that's out there. You know everybody knows the famous Harold Knight. You know Knight and Hale, Harold Knight. So a few years ago, you know Harold <clears throat> asked me, he said, "Terry, would you sell me forty mojos?" So well, I guess so, Harold. But what do you want to do with forty mojos? Well. Him and Earl Bence, Earl Bence made trotting boats. You know, him and Earl, Earl had a goose pit north of Nashville, and the ducks would fly over it all the time, but they'd never land there. And somebody told Harold, said, you know, if you put out enough mojos, they'll land there. And I said, well, okay. And um, I said, I, I said I'm going to ship. I didn't sell him anything. And uh, who would sell Harold Knight anything? You know, so talking about a legend. There's a real legend there. And uh, I sent him uh, probably 10 to 15 uh, babies, baby mojos, and a bunch of them little wing things mm -hmm. we used to have, you know. And he put them all out in front of that blind. The next time I seen him, I said, Harold, that worked? And he said, some days. And that's about the way it is. Not going to work every day. <clears throat> but it's just one of them things as a duck hunter, you, you got to see if you can try to figure out what to do next. And then sometimes you just got to try something different, you know. And it and, and it'll work sometimes. What's the most you've hunted over in a non-testing non-testing phase? Maybe ten. Dry field or water? Uh, water, water. You know <clears throat> the dry field that I've hunted in. Uh, let's just take our friend Rob Reynolds. Uh, uh, Steve's hunted up there with him. You hunt right next door to him up there, Chad. You know he's going to put out. Uh, he was putting out full body goose decoys. Now he's putting out uh, silhouette farm and four mojos. You, you go hunt with him, I'll bet you money right now. There's going to be four mojos there, and that's going to probably be the only duck decoy in his spread. And uh, they wiped them ducks clean. Now they're up there, you know, they far north where the ducks hadn't been pressured too hard yet, you know. So it's a little different scenario than we are down here in South Texas, South Louisiana, where we're at, you know. But that's his standard standard is four. Yeah, now, I've never seen any need to have more or less when I've hunted with him. How about you, Steve? I no. They worked. I mean, they but come land right. right on top of the mojo, but now you can't compare, you know, upper Alberta to South Texas. You can't, as far as the duck's attitude. Last question. Do you think COVID prompted duck numbers got them back up a little bit i know that some of them are stabilized do you think the pressure of being down north because a lot of people could not travel north for two seasons and for sure not as many americans were going up there to hunt ducks and geese on the provinces do you think it helped the duck numbers and kind of brought it back to even to where there's a lot more uneducated ducks that haven't seen a bunch of hunting pressure kind of a far-fetched question but i often thought about that without all the pressure going to canada will it change the way ducks behavior is will it will it you know take the pressure off of them no i think if anything it made it worse because um i, I say that because in the covid years which has been the last two uh you know you couldn't get on a hunt in the lower 48 states a decent hunt you couldn't they were booked full and uh so the pressure was no doubt lighter uh north of the border but it was heavier south of the border 
And so my my guess of that was was that the uh, uh, the ducks were more educated. We had a um, a poor harvest. I'm sorry, a, a poor hatch last year. We turned a a goodly number of ducks to the breeding grounds. I'm talking we returned them in the spring of 21, and uh, had a had a poor hatch. So uh, you had lower numbers and a much higher percentage of adults, much lower percentage of juveniles, makes them very, very hard to hunt. We've uh, returned a fewer number of ducks back to the breeding grounds for the spring of, uh, of 22, this spring. Uh, they had a good hatch in most places. They got some excellent habitat up there in certain parts of them. So uh, I noticed the U.S. Fish and Wildlife published the uh, breeding population about a month ago. And much was said about the fact that, that most of the species were down and uh, the teal were up, and, but most of the species were down and it kind of tends to discourage, uh, you know, people from duck hunting, but you know, that's not the main point. The main point is, is not what's the breeding population. The main point is what's the fall flight population. Well, if you got lower numbers, but you got higher hatch, you know, you, you, the fall flight was probably going to be higher, but I can't say that with, for a fact. But I, you can say for a fact it's going to have more juveniles in there, so I think it's going to be better this year. And those birds, the, those juveniles, they don't know that COVID occurred. You know, they weren't around during that period of time. So my, my point is I think COVID probably made it worse overall, but I think it's going to be better this fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's smart, ain't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. It's really sharp. What does it look like? What's the outlook for Rocky Creek from this? Do these trailers all stay here throughout the season? These hunters keep coming back in and out for the the big duck season. Does this piece of property always look like this from now until January? Yes. Well, how cool. Yeah, sure does. Yeah, we'll stay pretty busy. You know, COVID, that's a two-headed question on my side because financially, business bookings, COVID definitely helped because no one could go anywhere else. So they definitely used places like myself to come and then we definitely we you know we killed ducks and we we probably did send fewer ducks back like just like terry said so for me it's a double-edged sword business-wise it was good and ducks we need to we, we we need to take care of them we last year we we improvised a rule here where the guides wouldn't shoot their limit and and uh, uh we were we would quit some earlier some of our good clients that hunt a lot they didn't have to kill six they were happy with four some days and and intentionally quit and so there's a, there's a lot to be said for that too. So from here on out until January, it's just nonstop work. How, how big is the break between the split between till and regular season? It's just the month of October for us. You have the whole the month off. On the calendar. But no, it's probably a, probably a total of only about a week off. And hopefully I'll go to Canada and hunt with Rob. So on my one week that I get to do nothing. Lucky. So, yeah. Canada. Good stuff. I'm ready to go. So tonight, dinner, we have one more hunt tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, we had a prediction. You said it was going to be better today than it was yesterday. We were both wrong, weren't we, Terry? We lied. We lied. <laughs> we That's lied. the mystery I of duck hunting. My, I gave you my best uh, uh, my best guess. Steve had the same guess I did. He had been doing this for a long time. You can see we was wrong. And that's one thing that makes hunting in. Yeah. If and you could stats, just go out there and know what's going to happen, it wouldn't be near as interesting. No, you know? no. We were a little over half of what we were yesterday. and But I did. I will tell you, there was out of that half, the the halves that, you know, we had, we I, if we weren't filming, we would have shot a limited ducks this morning, right? Yeah. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And, but I had, I had out of the same number of groups that we had yesterday, half of them had some hunts with just tremendous hunts. I don't know if you got to visit with all of them, but I can, after we get off the air, I'll, I'll show you, show you what they had. And it was, I mean, and I had one guy that said that flocks 35, 40, the good stuff that we were looking for and just giving it up really? and a pond that's, it's called nine acres for a reason. Guess how big it is. It's mm-hmm. nine acres. Yeah. Is that where nine we're going acres. tomorrow? No, no, no. I'm just oh. saying the, uh, the, the pond we were on was 85 acres. The question should have been, can we go to that <laughs> pond? Yeah. So, and also that, you know, st- on my, again, we keep stats on the stats. That pond ranks in the bottom third traditionally. You just never so know. It's just duck hunting. Never know. It's just duck hunting. One of the ponds that had, uh, you know, killed a killed an eight-man limit yesterday, killed four ducks today. Explain that one. Crazy. Same flyway. The flyway's still there. He saw him. He just couldn't get him. Spooky was the word he used. Really? That blind, that blind's awesome. That's that's round pond, Terry. That's the one yeah. a couple years ago it shot a limit sixteen days in a row. Yeah, yeah, sixteen days in a row. Yeah, five to ten guys. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Where do you think we are going tomorrow, Steve? If you had to I guess. don't really know yet. I, I am. I'm gonna have to do some studying. I'm gonna look at what am I gonna look at? I'm gonna look at stats. Stats. I'm gonna look at stats. Going to the numbers. I'm gonna Sound know like the numbers. Terry. That's what engineers do. Moneyball. We're doing Moneyball tomorrow. Moneyball, straight yeah. up Billy, Billy, up. Billy, Billy Bean. Bean. Brad Billy Bean. Bean. Oakland Athletics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good luck Are with that. Are we going to eat any teal? Good luck with that, right? Good luck and with that. From the movie. Yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Are Jared, we do you play teal? golf? No. You play, you play golf? No, I play. I watch baseball and I duck hunt. Mm, so does too. Chad. Well, we the, like re- country music. the reason I asked yeah. that is that you know, if you – if you want to think about duck hunting, think about it just like golf. Now, I've never hunted a hit a golf ball in my life. I did have a charity golf tournament for years. We raised uh, money for needy kids, you know. But I got all my friends and my family. My son hunts. My brother uh, not hunts. Plays golf. My, my my brother plays golf. All that stuff plays golf, you know. And they do the same thing. They go out there and they just don't work that day. And they try and they get frustrated. And they come home. And they throw their darn clubs in the garbage can. And uh, then they go to bed and they lay in there and say, "I'm not gonna let that beat me." They go get the clubs out of the garbage can and go. Out there next door, I'm gonna beat that stuff, and that's about the way. Duck, that's a pretty good yeah. description of duck hunting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I love it. I love seeing what it brings. But one thing's for sure is that you got to go. Can't kill them on the couch, right? You can't, and it's just like you got to go because, like, tomorrow, you know, we could very easily be like, oh, you know, it's hot. We just we got we had two good days, but tomorrow could be magic. You just could never be. know, and especially with teal with the, could the full moon and how you guys are talking about how they're moving in and out. I mean, it could be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Every day is amazing. Could be. That we get to do this. Are we going to eat? get to eat teal tonight? Yeah, we had some more teal tonight. Yep. Are we? Yeah, they're oh. brining them right now. Oh, thank goodness. I like to eat teal. They were good, weren't they? Yeah. So after two days of hunting, Steve, is it safe to say that I'm climbing into your top five or top six with, with oh, Denman? Top two, probably. With him? Yeah. For real? Yeah. You don't have to say that just because yeah. we're on mic. Okay, well, maybe four then. <laughs> 40 100 yeah. <laughs> 40 hundred you're more entertaining than i am if you have a wide envelope of entertainment <laughs> i cannot believe the number of songs he, he's got yeah, really? plugged in that brain did you well where does he have time and, 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 at all and, and, and quote and, and, all and the, and the movie ju- lines and where, do you, where does a person From have time Western to listen rap to, to yeah unbelievable yeah. The movie quotes yeah. rupert holmes penny colada oh man it's amazing it's yeah amazing. but it's cool it's neat that how everybody's because his mind's amazing your mind's amazing it's different yeah 
Like I couldn't sit there and talk about all that. And he's well read. I mean, like oh, I yeah. want to be well read. I want to be. I want to be able to talk about Duck's vision. Or you be well read, and you stay up all night and watch movies. And I read too. Study the lines. <laughs> I read all the lines from a well, movie. Reading lyrics. He, he studied I read a lot lyrics. of lyrics. A lot of stories and yeah, songs, a lot of truth stories. and songs. That would be yeah, hard to true. do, but I, I don't have any musical ability, but I know I'd start, you know, humming a song, then I've heard a jillion times, and I can't remember the words on That's because that A-D-D-D-D kicks in. Terry D-D-D-D-D. T-D-Dimman. T-D-D-D-Dimman. Thank you, guys. It's been fun. Another good podcast, Foul Life. We'll leave you 2 a.m. logic. The song is called My Foul Life. Don't forget to book a hunt down here. Rocky Creek Retrievers. Do you have openings for next year or is this a waiting list? Uh, you better call soon. Call Steve the podcast. soon. Come on a teal hunt. Come on a big duck hunt. No goose hunts? I like to say we used to. I mean, we used to. I like to say we still do. They're, they're few and far between. When are we going to get to go visit the Belleville Meat Market? That place well, is might awesome. Might be the next trip. Yeah, we need to go come back and I got November, to meet the owner December. of the candy store last night too. Yeah. Great guys. Good stuff. Great show last night. Yeah, good stuff. Good covers, good originals. That Ma and Pa song, that's a hit. Yeah. yeah. Ma and Pa, y'all remember that one? Ma and mm-hmm. Pa. It's kind of like the Garth Brooks. Daddy drove a truck nearly all his life. You know, it drove mama crazy being a trucker's wife. The part she couldn't handle was the being alone. I guess she needed more to hold than just a telephone. Pops would call mama each and every night just to ask her how she was and if his kids were all right. When pops would hang up, take it. And gone again. Mama go to town. Or Papa something. love mama. Mama love man. Mama's in the graveyard. Papa's in the pen. <laughs> All right, we're out here until uh, I'm going to keep singing songs and we don't get out of here. This is 2 a.m. Logic, my pal life. Bye.